Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you guys again. This summer, uh, on June 29th, Tammy and I, along with 12 youth from the youth group, will be departing for the country of Slovakia. Some of you may have already been receiving letters of uh, support about that, asking you to be praying for them as they go to be partnering with them on that journey. Our our hope is that we're going to get to engage the Slovak and the Roma people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to be working with a small Baptist church there in the country of Slovakia. And the agency that we're partnering with is called World Changers. World Changers is sort of an aspect of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I got to tell you, over the last few months as I've been preparing and getting ready for this mission trip, that name, World Changers, I don't know, it just seemed kind of arrogant, kind of maybe a little bit uh, full of itself, maybe even a little bit brash. I mean, world changers, really? That's just how I felt. That's where I was. And then we started the book of 1 Thessalonians, and something happened. I don't know if you remember how the church at Thessalonica got started, but I want to bring you back there real quick. I know Tim talked about that a few weeks ago, but I want you... To, to kind of remember back to Acts 17, Paul and Silas come to town. They start preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. People are getting saved left and right. Relationships are forming between Paul and this new church at Thessalonica. But there's a group of people that aren't happy about it at all. It's the Jews. And so they seek to grab Paul and Silas and to drag them out in the street and to beat them up or maybe even worse. But they can't find them. They can't find Paul and Silas. But they found Jason. Jason was the owner of the house where Paul and Silas were staying. And they drag him out in the street. And listen to what they say about Paul and Silas in verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 6 of the book of Acts. They say, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also And Jason has received them. Did you catch what they said? These two guys, Paul and Silas, they've turned the world upside down and they've came here. These two guys who are world changers have come here. These guys don't even like Paul. They're enemies of Paul. But they can't help but realize the fact that when Paul shows up in a place, things start getting turned upside down. Paul's enemies call him a world changer. And then when in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells the Thessalonians um, that they're doing the same thing. He calls them world changers. He says, not only has the message of your faith gone out to Macedonia and to Achaia, that's their country and the neighboring countries, it's gone out everywhere. It's impacting the world. They're changing the culture around them for the sake of the gospel. Paul basically calls them a world changer. And so at that point, I kind of had to start reevaluating my thoughts on that name. And I've come to the conclusion that the name World Changer, it's not meant to be haughty. It's not meant to be impetuous. It's meant to be a goal that we aspire to. It's supposed to be who we are. The gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to transform us, to change us. We're supposed to be changing the world. And in our passage this morning, we get, a little, we get a little peek into the window of the relationship between Paul and the church at Thessalonica. We get to, to look in and we kind of 
get a little glimpse of what world changers look like. We get to see how they interact with one another, and hopefully we get to leave here a little bit more like them, that hopefully by the end that we, we want to be like them, that we want to be changing the world for Jesus Christ. And so let's, let's read together 1 Thessalonians 2.17, and we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians, and our prayer this morning is that by the end we, we might start having this desire to be a church that changes the world. 1 Thessalonians 2.17 But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul basically says two things here. He says, we wanted to come see you, but we couldn't. That's what he says, short, simple, and and to the point. But if we leave it at that, we're going to miss so much because the details here, they're just just full of information. And we we have to really dive into this. Because of that little tussle that took place back in Acts 17 where they dragged Jason out in the street, the brothers, the Christians in Thessalonica, they grab Paul and Silas and they say, guys, you've got to get out of town. You've got to leave tonight. You you can't say goodbye. You've just got to go for your own safety. Leave. And Paul says, in light of that, we were torn away from you. The language that he uses here is of being orphaned. Paul, he's like a father in the faith to them. And he says, I was ripped away from you and I left you like orphans. Paul says, because of that mob and the the difficulty and all the stuff that was happening, I had to physically get out of there. I had to leave town. But listen, my heart, it was always with you. He says, you're my brothers. You're like family to me. That's why I tried so hard to come and see you again and again. And he doesn't just simply say, I tried to come see you. He says, I endeavored eagerly with great desire. Paul is passionate for these guys. He he longs to be with them. He says, I can't take this anymore. I don't want to text you. Facebook's not going to cut it. I don't even want to use FaceTime. He says, I want to be where you are. I want to see you face to face. I want to be in your presence. I, I love you guys. And then in verse 19, he sort of tells them why. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Who who talks like that? I, I mean, if we took this story out of context and I just laid this conversation out for you, you would think it was probably a conversation between lovers, right? I mean, because this is love language. Paul says, I really wanted to see you. You are my joy. I'm overflowing with desire to see you. I love you. And this is love language, but the context isn't romantic. This isn't, this is Paul talking to the church. Have you ever had anyone talk to you like that? And I'm not talking about your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or girl. I, I mean, in the church. Have you ever talked to someone the way Paul talks to the Thessalonians? And the reason I'm asking is because apparently this is how world changers 
talk to each other. They love each other. And obviously we can see Paul's side of it is true. And in a few, a few verses over, we're going to see that they feel the same way about Paul as he feels about them. The Thessalonians love Paul. This isn't a, hey, how you doing? Okay, see you later kind of relationship. This is, this is deep. This is intimate. It's personal. I think most of us, if, well, at least some of us, if we're honest, we have relationships in the church that are superficial at best. We'll say, hey, how you doing? We'll smile. We ask how you doing, but we really don't want to know. But if the person says something is going great, we say, oh, that's nice. If they start telling us about some tragedy or some difficulty that they're facing, we say, oh, I'm so sorry. And then we quickly look to get out of there, right? We, we look for the exit. But the picture here with Paul, this is not like that. It, it, this is deep. This is, this is personal. They're, they're, they have an affection for one another. They weep together. They, they laugh together. This is a love relationship. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And, and so do you love the church? Do you, do you love the people around you? Are, are you investing your life in people? Or maybe I need to ask the question a little bit differently. Are you, do you feel responsible, at least to some extent, for the spiritual well-being of the people around you? Do you care about their spiritual health? Because when you read verse 19, you get the feeling that Paul certainly does. He says, on the day that Christ returns, do you know what my crown will be? On the day that Christ himself welcomes me home, do you know what my joy will be? He tells the Thessalonians, he says, it's you. You in heaven with me. You there when Christ returns, you'll be with me. That will be my joy. Seeing you and knowing that you persevered to the end with me. Paul cares about them spiritually. You know, as a youth pastor, I get to go on a a lot of different trips. I get to take a lot of different adventures. We go to, to camps, Six Flags, Ranger Games, retreats, overnight conferences, mission trips, international mission trips, and the list keeps going on. We do a lot of adventures. But do you know what one of my greatest fears is every time I go on one of those trips? One of my greatest fears is I leave here with 47 And come home with 46. And probably one of the, the reasons that that's a fear for me is because that actually happened one time when I was a student. I, I went on a trip to Six Flags. There was over 100 of us. We went on the trip. We had a great time. We rode the buses. We came home. Everyone's getting in the car with their parents. They're all leaving except one. Jason's mom and dad are sitting in the parking lot. And they say, where's Jason? Anybody seen Jason? We left that poor guy at Six Flags. I mean, that was a bad deal and nobody noticed. Nobody noticed. When I get home from our trips and every one of those kids gets in the car and goes home with their parents, I get to go home with a 
with a burden lifted off of me because they made it home. Paul says, you know what my crown will be when Christ returns? It'll be you. It will be my joy to see that you all made it home with the Lord. If we want to be like Paul, if we want to be world changers, then we have to be a church that is invested in the lives of other believers. We have to be discipling them and caring for them and loving for them. We have to take some responsibility for them spiritually. Paul cares for the Thessalonians. He's, he's concerned about them. That's, what he, that's why he writes what he writes next in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Look what it says. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we set, sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul cares for the church at Thessalonica. He, he loved them, and when he couldn't get to them himself, well, he did the next best thing that he could think of. He sends his right-hand man. He sends Timothy to them. And Paul says he sent Timothy to them to establish them and exhort them in the faith. Paul wants them to be rooted. He wants them to be grounded. He wants Timothy to in- encourage them, especially in light of their circumstances, They're in the midst of persecution and afflictions. Paul told them it would happen, and it did. In fact, he says, we are destined for this. You know, suffering in the Christian life, it shouldn't be a surprise for us. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. Suffering shouldn't be a surprise for us if we're following Christ. If we are sharing the gospel, if we are attempting to change the world for Christ... Suffering is going to happen. 2 Timothy 3.12 says it a little more straightforward. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Listen to me. God has ordained suffering and affliction for those who follow him. I know that's hard to take sometimes, but but that's what the Bible tells us. And if that's the case, how do we we deal with that? How do we endure that? How do we prepare ourselves for that? Well, Paul says by being established in our faith, by being rooted and grounded and encouraging others to do the same. We need to be rooted and grounded so that we're not moved when difficulties come come our way we need to be grounded in our faith so that we're not shaken in the face of persecution one of the ways that we are established in our faith is by knowing and understanding what the bible says about suffering 
This wasn't a surprise. God knew Paul would suffer. In fact, in Acts 9.16, God does not only know about it, he prepares Paul for it, he, he approves it, and he appoints it for Paul. And in Matthew 5.11, it says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When we suffer for the sake of the gospel, Jesus Christ, he blesses us so that even in the midst of our suffering, we're grounded in, in our faith. We're strengthened. We're encouraged. And when we suffer for the kingdom, we're changing the world because Christ is being glorified through us and, and in us. Do you believe that this morning? Are you discipling other people in their faith? Are you encouraging them, even in the, the midst of your own difficulties and even in the midst of, of their trials and, and their hardships? Because when that's not happening in the church, I think that's when Paul's fear that's mentioned in verse 5 comes to pass. In verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, and here it is, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul says we face a very real and a formidable foe. Back in 2.18, he called him Satan, the adversary, the one who was preventing him from coming to the Thessalonican church. Paul says we're in, in a battle. And part of living out the Christian life, part of being someone who changes the world, is realizing that, that we're in a battle and persevering through those times of, of difficulties. Satan is going to lie to you. He's going to tempt you. He's going to tempt you to believe that when heartache comes, when, when trial ensues, that, that God is nowhere to be found, that he can't help you, that he's somehow powerless and you are here to suffer alone. But that's a lie. That's not the truth. Some of the greatest growth some of the greatest encouragement in the Christian life comes in the midst of heartache and trial. Paul loves this church and he, he wants them to keep following the Lord, to keep trusting, to keep standing firm. No matter what difficulties come their way, no matter what difficulties they hear that Paul has to endure. That's why he sent Timothy. If we're going to be a, a church that changes the world, then we have to be establishing one another and grounding one another and encouraging one another in the faith. Up to this point in the book of Thessalonians, Paul's just pouring out his heart to the church at Thessalonica. He's writing them this, this letter. He's already sent Timothy to them. And then we get to 3.5. And at 3.5, at that point, I, I, I like to imagine that right after Paul finishes writing 3.5, Timothy returns. Look at what it says. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. 
For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Can you imagine this scene? Paul's pouring his heart out. He's just been writing to them. He he loves these guys. He's worried sick for them. He's concerned about them. He's wondering, how are they doing? Man, I should be there. I should be with them. Why can't I get to them? I hope they're standing firm. Has the tempter somehow swayed them? Oh, I hope Timothy has gotten to them in time. And, And right then, I like to imagine that Timothy just burst through the door. Paul, Paul, I'm back. You're not going to believe this. They are doing great. They are standing firm. They're not shaking. They are walking by faith. Do you believe it, Paul? Good news. I have good news for you, Paul. This is incredible. And at that moment, this, this burden that Paul's carrying for them, it just falls off. Timothy gave him some good news. And he he tells them, he says, and now Timothy has come back to us and he has brought us the good news of your faith. And and not only that, Paul, or Timothy tells Paul that your love for them matches their love for you. They're going through all kinds of difficulty. They're going through all kinds of struggle, but they're standing firm. And when Paul hears that report, it brings him comfort He's overjoyed because of the report. I think most of us can relate to this. We have a Christian brother or a Christian sister. They're facing some sort of difficulty or some sort of uh, tragedy in their life. Maybe it's sickness or, you know, a death in the family. And we go to them and we think, you know what, We'll, we'll encourage them. We'll support them somehow. And as we're attempting to minister to them, because they are so firm in, the, in their faith and because they're so trusting in the Lord and, and they're just living out this, this faith, even in the midst of this trial, we end up being the ones encouraged, right? We end up being comforted because of their faith. That's what's happening for Paul here. Paul's encouraged by them. He's comforted. And then in verse 8, he, he takes it up a notch. He says, now I can live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And, and that if that's there, that's not really a question. He's saying, since you are standing fast in the Lord, now I can live again. Kind of sounds like love language again, right? Guys, you know this. You met your wife. You probably said something like this. I don't know what it is about that girl, but man, she just, she just makes me feel alive, Right? Maybe not. Maybe it's just me. All right. So, uh, you know, I don't know about this girl, but she makes me feel alive. But again, Paul's not, he's not speaking to, to, in in a romantic sense here. He's speaking like a father to his children. And then he starts praising the Lord. He says, praise you, Lord, because my children are following you. They're standing firm. I'm so thankful and I'm just overflowing with joy because of their faith. If you're a parent this morning, you get this. You want your kids to be happy. 
And when they're not, your heart aches for them, right? You're just miserable. And if you've got multiple kids and all of them seem to be doing great, but that you have that one that's just in the midst of some, some serious circumstances with some difficulty, your heart just breaks for, for that one. Tammy and I have some friends who get this better than most right now. They have a child serving. They have a child serving overseas, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are in the midst of difficulty there. Facing hardship. But what should encourage my friends, and I think what does encourage them, is that their child is standing firm in the faith. That brings them comfort and joy. That's the kind of language Paul's using here. He says, I was dying inside. I was dying because I didn't know how you were doing it. I I knew it had to be pretty bad. But now, I can live again. Now I can live because you are standing firm in your faith. And just so I'm clear here, Paul's not comforted because the difficulty stopped. No, the Thessalonians are still knee deep in the midst of this. He's comforted because they're standing firm in their faith. They're they're following the Lord. And so parents, how do you pray for your kids? Do you pray that they'll have a good life, that they'll have a good marriage, good job, grandkids, of course, right? If that's how you pray, those things are good. There's nothing wrong with those things. But I think a a more important prayer would be that you pray for your children to be grounded in their faith, that they would stand firm, that they would be encouraged in their faith. I think as parents, we often want the circumstances to be easy for our kids. But what's best for our children is that they stand firm regardless of the circumstances that they face. Paul's comforted by the Thessalonians. He's relieved that they're standing firm. He's thankful. He's joyful. He loves them. And he still wants to come see them. In verse 10, he says, we prayed night and day to see you face to face. And then he tells them why he wants to see them. He he says, I pray night and day so that I will see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Hmm. Did you catch what Paul said there? He says, I love you guys. I'm praying all the time. I want to come and see you because I love you. But honestly... You've got some weaknesses. You've got some limitations. You've got some deficiencies in your faith. And I want to fix that for you. How would you like to get that letter? I love you. I miss you. I'm dying to come see you. But honestly, you've got some shortcomings and I need to fix that. Uh, Kind of an odd letter. What in the world is, is Paul saying? Well, he's saying he loves them, but he's also saying that they have a lot of shortcomings. When the Thessalonian church formed, when Paul basically became the the founding pastor of that church, he didn't have a lot of time to disciple them. He was only there for a very short amount of time, and then he had to leave. 
And, and so Paul says, man, you guys are young in, in your faith. You're, you're doing great. You're standing firm. But there's so much more I want to teach you. There's so much more that you guys need to learn. And so Paul says, I want to come teach you. I want to train you. I want to disciple you. Paul wants to teach them the word of God. He wants to supply what's lacking in their faith. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. When you truly love someone, you care enough to tell them the truth. Even if it hurts you a little bit and if it hurts them a little bit. And you know, I don't have to tell you that. You already know that's true. Your best friends, your true friends, the ones that really love you, they'll tell you when you've got something in your teeth, right? Or something in your hair. At least I've heard they will. I don't really know about that one, but I definitely know about the teeth, right? And, and nobody wants to go home and have that big old chunk of asparagus, you know, hanging out of your mouth and you get home, you look in the mirror and, and what do you say when you see it? Why didn't somebody tell me? True friends will tell you when you have a shortcoming in your faith. People who love you will tell you when you're doing something wrong. Paul loves the Thessalonians. He, he, he loves them enough to tell them the truth. That they've got a lot to learn. People who are changing the world, they speak the truth in love They disciple one another. They supply what's lacking. They help each other in this journey of faith. And I know at this point, some of you are probably thinking, man, being a world changer is a tall order. I've got to love people that I'm not even sure I really like. I have to disciple people and I have to be discipled myself. I have to encourage people, even in the midst of whatever difficulty I'm facing and and despite whatever trial or hardship they're in, I've got to speak truth in love. I've got to stand firm in my faith. How in the world am I supposed to do that? Well, I think Paul's closing prayer gives us some insights. He says in verse 11, he he prays, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul prays that they would increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Do you see what Paul's doing there? He's putting a direct correlation between their holiness And the love that they express to each other and to the world. Or to say it maybe a little bit differently, Christianity demands community. Short and sweet, relationships matter. They're essential to the Christian life. Paul prays for their love to increase because it's in the context of their loving relationships where their holiness is established. It doesn't do any good to grow in the knowledge of the word if it doesn't change how you live your life. You can't be a world changer if you're not loving people. You can't be a world changer if you're not praying for people, if you're not investing your life in them, if you're not pouring out your heart on them. 
And the beautiful thing here is that when you commit to living the Christian life, when you commit to being a world changer, you don't have to do it alone. We, we, we sung the song, I, I'm not alone. Not only are you with the community of believers, look at what Paul says. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love so that he may establish your hearts blameless. Paul says it's the Lord who's working in you and through you. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6 says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Jesus Christ is the one who makes us sufficient to change the world. That's who we're called to be. We're called to be world changers. Not of ourselves, not not in of ourselves, but through God working in us. That's Paul's prayer. He's asking the Lord to, to keep using the Thessalonians, to keep growing them in love so that they are established in holiness. That's Paul's prayer for them. And that's my prayer for us, that God would keep using us for his kingdom, that he would keep growing us, keep establishing us in holiness so that we can do what we're meant to do, so that we can change the world. As Paul closes out his prayer, he tells them, kind of couches why he's praying. He says, because Christ is coming back. The return of Christ was on Paul's mind when we started this in 2.17. And it's on his mind as he he wraps it up at the end of chapter 3. He says, what is my glory and joy at the coming of Christ? It's you. Why am I praying for God to keep changing the world through you? Well, because Christ is coming back. Paul has his sights set on eternity. He's focused on the day that Jesus Christ returns, when he appears. Paul knows that what we do here directly affects how we will live there. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians to be ineffective. He wants them to keep changing the world. Paul doesn't want us to be ineffective. He wants us to be world changers. As believers, that's who we're meant to be. That's who we're supposed to be. That's who we're called to be. And, And being a world changer means committing myself to the gospel It means crying out to the Lord to make me increase and abound in love. It means investing my life in each and every one of you in the body of Christ. It means loving each other. Why? Well, because Christ is coming back. If you're a follower of Christ and his love is abounding in you, you don't get to the end of days and say, I made it. No, you, you get to the end of days. And, and you say, I poured out my heart. 
I ministered to the body of Christ. I changed the world. I just gave my life for that purpose. And by the grace of God, I'm here. And so are you. And so are they. This summer, we're going to head off to Slovakia in attempts to to live up to the name World Changers. But I think that's where we kind of get that wrong sometimes. Changing the world isn't just about mission trips. Changing the world has to start right here. It has to start in, in the body of Christ. We have to be a people that, that loves each other, that invests our lives in one another, that cares about each other spiritually. Being a world changer has to start right here. I pray that we will be a church that changes the world for Jesus Christ.